On warm summer's day in ancient Greece, a young shepherd boy was sitting on a fence watching his sheep. Sounds pretty iconic. But the boy is bored. In fact, he's so bored he comes up with a mischievous plan to entertain himself. Wolf! Wolf! he cries. There's a wolf attacking the flock. Down below in the village, the villagers scramble. They grab whatever they can, a pitchfork, whatever. Charge up the hill, ready to fight this wolf or drive him. But all they find is the little boy laughing, giggling away, thinking that he is so clever. Cross and frustrated, the villagers give him a scolding and mutter as they walk back down the hill. Later that day, the boy finds himself bored again. So again, wolf, wolf, no, really, guys, really this time, there is a wolf. Villagers scramble, grab what they can, charge up the hill. But again, no wolf. This time the villagers are angry. There's probably a few choice words. The boy gets a right scolding. And then they mutter away as they go back down the hill. As the sun sets towards the evening, the boy is looking out and he spots an actual wolf. Crawling along, I got the flock. Panicked, he shouts, Wolf! Wolf, guys! Really, really, really! It's a wolf this time! But nobody comes. Nobody so much as murmurs. Please, guys! Please, there's a wolf! Nothing. The sun sets, and the villagers start to wonder where the little boy is. So a bunch of them go up the hill, and they find him, sitting on the floor, sobbing. Guys, I called, I called, there was a wolf, why didn't you come? And sure enough, the flock was scattered, several sheep lay dead, and the wolf was gone. Why didn't you come when I called? An old man looks at the boy and says this, Nobody believes a liar, even when he's telling the truth. The boy who cried wolf is a morality tale that has been told to, tell, or to teach children the dangers of telling lies. And sometimes when we come to the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament narratives, it could be tempting for us to approach them as a morality tale. For example, if we were to take Jonah as a morality tale, then we would say Jonah was given a clear command by God, he disobeyed God, went his own way, so God, to punish him, sent a storm and got him swallowed by a fish. Okay, what's the lesson? You need to follow God and obey his commands, otherwise you'll get punished. Well, hands up if you've ever disobeyed God or not lived up to his standard. Okay, not just me. Okay, keep your hand up if you've ever been swallowed by a giant fish. Oh. And when we look around and we see you know, people we know living for themselves, living in disobedience to God, we see that actually a lot of them look like they're doing just fine. You see, the morality tale, as well-intentioned as it may be, doesn't live up to too much scrutiny. When we look around and see lots of people living without consequences, the lesson is lost. And it might amuse you to know that kids that are told the boy who cried wolf are actually more likely to tell lies than kids who are not told the story. 
So morality tales, they don't really portray the truth, and they actually don't even work. So, okay, morality tales are not the way we're going to approach this passage. What about an application focus? I call this the application focus. Last night I was lying in bed and I thought, actually, this should be application first. I think that's a better terminology, but I didn't have time to change it this morning. Application first. What's application first? Well, when we come to the Bible, we go, right, what can I get out of this? What's this saying to me? How does this scripture influence my life? What's God trying to tell me? How can I be more like or less like the human character in this story? The application process might look like, or actually, application approach might look like this. Jonah was disobedient to God. But once he was thrown overboard, he was in, and he was in danger of losing his life, he called out to the Lord. He pleaded to the Lord to be saved. It's never too late to turn back to the Lord. If you, like Jonah, have been disobedient to God, call upon the Lord. Uh, sorry, if you've been, like Jonah, been disobedient to God but wandered away from Him, be like Jonah and call upon the Lord before it's too late. And that sounds a bit better, but Jonah actually never repents. Not at this part of the story. So if we take this approach, are we to say, well, maybe we don't really need to repent? And Jonah doesn't pray or call upon the Lord when he's in the storm, when he's on the boat. In fact, the pagans are all praying to the God, or their gods, but Jonah's sitting there stubbornly refusing. So it actually doesn't actually pray until he gets into the water and is drowning. So again, if we start here and we say that we should wait until the last possible moment, until we're really, really in trouble before we reach out to the Lord. So you can see when we took this application first process, we actually miss so much of the point. So, how should we approach the Bible? Well, the Bible is primarily about God. It's God's revelation to man about who he is and his redemptive plan for the world. From beginning to end, the storyline of the Bible, the storyline of scripture, looks forward to and finds its final resolution in God's redeeming son. So with this in mind, let's look at Jonah 2. Jonah 2 is bookmarked either end by these very matter-of-fact statements but they're actually these incredible, miraculous acts of God. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Bookmarked beginning and end of the passage. And so many of us who have grown up in Christian families, who have grown up in the church, we just take this for granted. Yeah, 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 Jonah was swallowed by a fish, and then spat out three days later. But for Jonah, this is the difference between life and death. For Jonah, uh, this is the difference between, quite frankly, getting what he deserved and God's gracious deliverance. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? An unrepentant, undeserving person being saved by a gracious and loving God. Well, there's some anticipation for my conclusion, but we'll get back to that later. Jonah must have been blown away. 
He must have been in awe of God. You can't go through something like that and not recognize the greatness of God and his power and his sovereignty on this earth. But not only does God have the power to save, he also has the compassion to do so. Jonah, a prophet who God had spoken directly to, had scorned him, turned his back on God, and refused to pray even when pagans were praying around him, who would rather be thrown to his death than follow God's command to go to Nineveh. And yet, despite all this, God saves Jonah. Then we have Jonah's prayer. And this sort of reads more like Joan reflecting on a prayer as he writes his story later in life. But it's a beautifully vivid, poetic passage which is full of references to the psalm, which not only helps us really understand Jonah's peril, but gives us great and deep insights into our God. And remember, Jonah was a prophet, a man who had spent his life in ministry steeped in scripture. So it's not unreasonable to suggest that he really did pray these things in his desperation as he sank to the depths. He certainly must have prayed along these lines. My brother was my best man at my wedding, and he decided to tell all of our friends and family by the time that I nearly got us both killed. Okay? Uh, it's a game that we later point danger with. I don't know why I got all the blame, but I did. But, and I'll not recount too much of the tale, but it, anyway, it ended up with both of us being swept out to sea, struggling against a riptide. And I'll never forget panicking and you know, swimming through the waves and going nowhere. And just that feeling of powerlessness and the feeling of the, the power of the tide just pulling me out to sea and there was nothing I could do. Now, as you can tell, I didn't get swept out to sea and die. My neighbor did Paddy, luckily. Probably wouldn't be telling the story with a smile like that. So we got out of that situation, but that was only a glimpse of what Jonah went through. I remember that experience really shook me, but it was only a fraction of what Jonah went through. Verse 3, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, you, and the currents swirled around me, all your waves and breakers swept over me. As he struggles in the waves, he's thrown about by the currents. As he realizes how powerless he is, Jonah's stubbornness breaks. And he calls to the Lord. He pleads with his God for his life. Verse 1. In my distress I call to the Lord. From the depths of the grave I called for help. Jonah knows that God is sovereign. He knows that God is in control. He knew it on the boat when the sailors asked him what to do. And he knows it now too. But it's only when he's in this distress that his eyes are opened to how foolish he's been. As Jonah sinks to the depths, down to the roots of the mountain, as the weeds of the seabed wrap around him, as his life ebbs away, he has a real sense of being separated from God. I have been banished from your sight. Verse 4. This is the darkest moment for Jonah. On the brink of death, feeling separated from God, calling out to the Lord for help. And what does God do? He answers. 
First one who listened to my cry. Jonah's situation was hopeless. Jonah couldn't save himself. But God dramatically intervenes with certain death to rescue Jonah. Not because God needed Jonah, or because Jonah deserved to be saved. No, because God is full of grace and mercy towards those who rebelled against him. And you can tell from this reading that Jonah feels a deep gratitude to God for his salvation. There is a real sense of heartfelt thanks for his deliverance. Jonah's poetic prayer ends with this line, Salvation comes from the Lord. Or in the ESV, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is to be found in no person, no place, no thing other than the Lord. And the Lord's salvation, it's his to give. David covered this excellently last week. Before, the, before this point in the story, Jonah believes that only the Israelites should be saved. He reduces the God of the universe down to this regional God held captive by the Israelites. But God shatters this delusion. He humbles Jonah and proves not only to Jonah, but to all the Israelites that he is the God of the whole earth who will redeem all tribes, all peoples, and all nations. Many people believe that God opens a door to salvation and then steps back. But, uh, sorry, many people believe that God opens a door and then steps back, leaving it for us to decide whether or not we come in. But if God made salvation possible, then step back, refusing to interfere with our choice of our entire lives, or, sorry, refusing to interfere with our choice, then the entire life of the believer would be about us. It would be about our believing, about our serving, about our following. It would be our choice to live a good life. In the case of Jonah, from inside the fish, God was claiming someone who was quite incapable of performing any redemptive work to compensate for his sin. God was not relying on Jonah to save Jonah. Similarly for us, if you have trusted in the God for salvation, he has done more than simply make it possible. He has actually saved you. And the passage ends with Jonah vomit, being vomited onto a beach and Jonah now obeying God's command. This is a high point in the story. Jonah has personally received God's grace um, despite his rebellion. From this point you would expect plain sailing. Excuse me, pardon. You would expect Jonah to be excited to share the good news about how a sinner was saved and see the Ninevites repent and receive the same. That's what you expect to see. You'll have to come back next week to see what really happens. Earlier I said that from the beginning to the end, the storyline of Scripture looks forward to and finds its final resolution in God's redeeming Son. The Old Testament is full of pointers to Jesus, full of anticipation of God's redemptive plan. Some of them are shadows of greater things to come. Some pointers are through contrast with Jesus. Jonah and the sailors face God's just wrath in the storm, and Jonah sacrifices himself to save the sailors, a shadow of what Jesus will do on the cross. But Jonah is sinful, 
disobedient and has very questionable motivation and it only saves a handful of sailors from an earthly death. Jesus, in contrast, is sinless, is obedient to the Father, and has righteous motivations. And as he goes to the cross, he saves all of humanity, not just from an earthly death, but from eternal separation from the Father. Jonah, who wanted to escape the Lord, who didn't appreciate his presence in his life, gets a brief taste of being separated from God, and it terrifies him. Jesus, the sinless, obedient Son, fully God and fully man, is separated from the Father on the cross by the weight of our sin. Jonah's plunge into the depths, as terrifying as it may be, is only a fraction of the true cost that Jesus paid on the cross. Jonah descends into a watery grave for three days and three nights. A symbolic death before God rises him up again from the pit to bring salvation to the Ninevites. Jesus descends into the real grave. He defeats sin and death and rises again on the third day to bring salvation to all mankind. Colin Smith, a Scottish minister and theologian, calls these continuity lines by which he means we can draw lines from the beginning of the Bible right through, which show that God has consistently been working towards the redemption and salvation of his word, world fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, to summarize, what, do, what does Jonah 2 tell us about God? God is sovereign over the whole earth, the sea, and the creatures. God's salvation is for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Salvation comes from God and God alone. And now, informed by these things, what should we take away from today? What should we apply to our lives? Well, firstly, God's unmerited grace is available to you. Whoever you are, if you turn to the one true living God, in repentance and faith. Two, when we grasp the reality of God's compassion, grace and mercy on us, despite our rebellion, disobedience and sinfulness, it should move us to have compassion, mercy and grace on, our, on the lost within our community. Thirdly, salvation belongs to our God. It doesn't depend on us. We can live confidently knowing that we are safe in his hands. We have assurance of our salvation. We can trust in him. In his book, Anywhere But Nineveh, Frank Seller writes this prayer. And let's pray it all together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, whatever state I am in, whatever condition or dire strait I have got into, I turn to you. Not because I'm worthy, but because I'm not. But because you are good and have, uh, and have promised to respond to those who seek you, I do not want to sink down any deeper. Please, have mercy on me. Lord, and enable me to worship you again in spirit and in truth. For Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>